0: You are at the heart of God's activity in the world. When Peter begins his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes to elect believers in the very first verse of 1 Peter 1 in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and then tells them in our text now in 1 Peter chapter 2, the passage that Pastor Anderson just read in your hearing, that the epicenter of God's plan is is not that stone temple standing in Jerusalem, but them. Look at our text, and I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 2. Peter tells them in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. And Peter's premise is, you and I are the temple of God. And he's trying to get them from being temple-centric at that temple in Jerusalem to understanding the temple that God is building in the new covenant. Now I want to remind you some about the old historic stone temple. The temple in Jerusalem was huge, massive, and marked by external glory. It had been built by Solomon in 950 BC. It stood for 370 years. Then it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in 586 BC. When the Jewish exiles returned from Babylonian captivity 50 years later, they began to immediately, because they were a temple-centric culture, they began to construct the second temple. And we read in Ezra chapter 3, after that second temple was finished, we read these words that many of the priests and Levites, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. They wept because the second temple, the plans were so small, so weak as compared to the first temple of Solomon. The second temple was built only 50 years since the temple of Solomon had been destroyed. So there were many older men who had seen it when they were younger and they clearly remembered its glory. They couldn't help weeping when they saw the humble plans for rebuilding the temple. We often use these words wrongly and out of context, but Zechariah 4, Zechariah says this building of the second temple, it was a day of small things and it was sad to the Jewish people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said the second temple was only half as high as Solomon's temple and in every way inferior to it. But the main difference in that second temple and the first one under Solomon was not just in size, but in the complete absence of rich adornments of gold and precious stones. In 20 BC, King Herod the Great decided this second temple needed to be expanded. And so he began a multi-decade construction process, still very much happening during Jesus' day. You remember in Jesus' day in John chapter 2 that some of his critics said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But what had happened was that second temple had corridors and courts being added, which contained tens of thousands of visitors and worshipers. And so now as Peter writes these words, as you're looking at 1 Peter 2, as Peter writes these words, the temple in Jerusalem was massive and bustling because it had been expanded under Herod. It had been been built on more corridors, more courts. And it was bustling. It was still very much the spiritual center of old covenant Judaism. But it would be torn down in just a few years, in 70 A.D. by the onslaught of Roman armies. But Peter tells the recipients of of this epistle, I hope you're looking at verse 5, he tells these humble new covenant believers largely gentiles that you I we are the temple he says it in verse 5 you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house now I want you to think about how the focus has shifted under the with the first temple under Solomon glorious a building. You could see it. You could walk through and you could look at all the adornment. The second temple after the first is torn down, much smaller, much humbler, but still a building. And now it's been expanded under Herod. And so what Peter is saying is, is there has been a massive shift from Old Covenant to New. When we think about the the transitions from Old Covenant to New, of course, one is Old Covenant worship was place-centric. It had to be at the temple in Jerusalem. Now it can happen anywhere in spirit and truth. But Peter gets even more basic and fundamental and says, one of the huge differences between the Old Covenant and the New is the temple in the Old Covenant was a physical building. Glorious or or smaller, less glorious, but a, a building. And now Peter says this astounding statement. Now, look at verse 5, you're the temple. You are living stones. But what Peter wants to hurry up and get to is, is, okay, you're, you're part of the temple construction, but the cornerstone. The cornerstone in the new temple, the new covenant temple, is more glorious than ever under Solomon because the cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to explore what this means in our text for Jesus Christ to be the cornerstone. Now, our habit, if you've never been with us before, our habit, not always, but usually is in our morning services to preach through New Testament books and our evening services to preach through Old Testament books. And so tonight, we'll continue that. We'll continue in our exposition of the book of Joshua. But this this morning, you will need your Bible open. I was having a conversation with a young man this week who was asking me about our philosophy of ministry. And I said, our philosophy is to build mature believers. Not to bump along the bottom and just just barely expose you to the word, but to go deep and rich in the scriptures. Our, our strategy is to build mature believers who know their Bibles. Now, today is going to present a challenge to that model. Because what you're going to see today is we can't just look at one text. We can't just look at 1 Peter. We're going to see that Peter is rooting you in a, in a glorious history of Old Testament metaphors. And so you're going to have to think. I know that you came here thinking, well, the only thing I'm going to think about is Mother's Day lunch. But that's still hours away from now. But what the Lord has called you to think about right now is to think deeply about this rich image that is spoken of in the New Testament but rooted in the Old Testament, the image of Jesus, the cornerstone. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to open this word. Sovereign Lord, we bow before you. In your holy word, we acknowledge that we are unworthy servants and don't even deserve to possess your word, but how we praise you that because of your great love for us, your children, you've revealed this word to us. You've given us this sharp sword that divides truth from error and belief from unbelief. You've given us this word that is sweeter than honey, nourishing and sustaining us. You've given us a light for our paths while the rest of the world stumbles in darkness. So now take this word and make it understandable to us. Cause us by your Holy Spirit to learn, digest, profit, and be matured by this very text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you're going to need your Bible open at 1 Peter 2, but in order to understand this figure, you're going to have to begin with the Old Testament. Testament prophecies that Peter is quoting. Now remember, Peter's Bible is the Old Testament. There is no New Testament canon. Peter is helping to write the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter's Bible is the Old Testament. And so Peter wants to speak of the cornerstone. Where would he get such information? Out of the Old Testament. Keep one finger here and look at one of the texts he quotes Psalm 118. You'll notice that he quotes it there in verse 7 of our text. Peter is quoting the Psalms. Now, remember, this is why we sing a psalm in every one of our worship services, morning and evening, because for well over a thousand years, the only sung book that Israel had, the Old Testament church had, was the Psalter. And so we revel in singing the psalms here, not exclusively, but inclusively. So look at Psalm one eighteen twenty two. You have a, a prophetic psalm. Every Israelite knew this. They sung it a thousand times, probably memorized it. And they struggled to understand what this meant. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. David penned these words in approximately 980 B.C. And what's interesting is the New Testament writers all line up to quote this. All of them, they seize on this and they they quote this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke again in the book of Acts, Paul in Ephesians 2, now Peter in 1 Peter 1. They all want to quote this text and say, see, it's pointing to Jesus a thousand years before the fact that Jesus was always intended to be both the rejected stone by the religious institution of Judaism and the chief cornerstone. And so I I want you to see with me where Peter would get this idea. It's not just that he knew it from Psalm 118. He heard Jesus expound this psalm. Now this is where you're going to have to work. You're going to have to really think sequentially with me here. Look at Luke chapter 20. This is a day when Peter heard Jesus preaching this psalm, explaining it. In Luke 20, Jesus, of course, is deeply offended by the Jewish institution. He is arguing with them in a righteous and holy fashion. And he says... In Luke 20, verse 17, he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so this, is a, this was a psalm, by the way, Psalm 118, that was sung at Passover every year. That was its liturgical use. And what Jesus is saying here in Luke 20, he's saying he is the cornerstone. The religious leaders he was speaking with were supposed to be the builders of God's house, yet they had rejected Jesus. The very stone which God had chosen to be the cornerstone upon whom the whole superstructure was built, Jesus was standing before them, but they think he's a fake. They say he's a servant of Beelzebub, a friend of the ungodly, and they despised and rejected him. Well, who was there that day? Who was there listening to Jesus explaining the figure of speech of the cornerstone? Peter. And so he hears Jesus quoting Psalm 118, stating that he is the cornerstone. And so just a few months later, after the the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, as soon as Peter gets his opportunity to preach, in Acts chapter 4, he preaches on this text. And he applies it to Jesus. And he says to Annas and Caiaphas in Acts chapter 4, You men rejected Jesus, but he is the chief cornerstone. He came out of the grave, and all of the kingdom of God is now built on top of his person and work. It's interesting in this text, you see here in Luke chapter 20, that sermon that, that Peter heard by Jesus. When Jesus states that he's the cornerstone, he says he's the boulder of judgment. To fall on him, and he's there citing Isaiah 8, to fall on him or him fall on you, either case means destruction for you. Jesus has in mind the words of Daniel 2, where the Messiah is pictured as a stone that crushes all that gets in his way. So authoritative is Jesus that he's the judgment stone for every person, culture, and nation in all history. If you or any other person build on any other foundation, you'll be crushed by him. This is why we preach Christ. He alone is the the right foundation to build for all eternity. So here in our text, look back at our text. I realize your head is going to start spinning in a moment to try to trace this figure of speech. Here in our text, in verse 7, Peter says, To you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, well, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he quotes Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And earlier in verse 4, he has quoted Isaiah 28.16. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Now, do you notice what Peter is doing? He quotes, in our context... Three Old Testament texts, Isaiah twice and the Psalms once. And what I want to do this morning in your hearing is I want you to think and get this this imagery deeply embedded in your brain because it's so important. Again, several of the New Testament writers quote it. Peter preaches it in Acts 4. Now he quotes it in his epistle in 1 Peter 2. And so what we are meant to see by all of this repetition is the figure of the cornerstone is a key way for you and I to think about Jesus. There are other pictures of Christ. Christ the Lamb, for example. But what I want us to see this morning is why Jesus is called the cornerstone. Look at verse 6 and 7, where Peter quotes these texts. Isaiah 28, he calls... Jesus a chief cornerstone. And then in verse 7, he calls him the chief cornerstone quoting Psalm 118. Let's dig deeper now. Using engineering terms, I realize we have structural engineers in the room. And so your mind at this point is just going like this, thinking of all the connections of what it means that Jesus is a cornerstone. So there are at least two things that are meant by this phrase. That Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the new covenant temple. The first thing that's meant is this. The cornerstone brings two walls together. The cornerstone is the tool that joins two walls that are in opposite direction. Before the coming of Christ or the setting in place of the cornerstone. You had two walls that were separated. Jews and Gentiles. They were separated by the ceremonial law. That was Israel's pride, was the ceremonial law. The, the Gentiles knew nothing of it, had no interest in it. But Jesus, by being the cornerstone, has done that great function of a cornerstone, He's joined these two walls. And so Ephesians 2 says that instead of being a separating wall to divide, Jesus is a cornerstone to hold together. And so the first function of a cornerstone, thinking with you historically, is Jesus is a cornerstone to bring these two great walls, perpendicular walls, together, Jews and Gentiles. But then there's a second more important function of a cornerstone. The cornerstone not only brings two walls together, but the cornerstone upholds the whole building in ancient jewish construction if you if you took out the cornerstone the building would collapse so it's being said of jesus by peter calling him over and over again the cornerstone it's being stated he's the sustainer and upholder of the church that's why paul calls the church in 1st corinthians 3 god's building because we're built on christ the cornerstone in ancient Greek mythology, you may be aware of this, one of the ancient Greek myths, and it was a myth, was that Atlas carried the world on his shoulders. Of course, that's a myth. But Jesus as the cornerstone, does carry the church on his shoulders. That's why Isaiah prophesied of Jesus hundreds of years before he comes, that the government will be upon his shoulders. In other words, the care and support of the whole church will be up to him as the cornerstone. The image of the cornerstone is actually rooted deeper in the Old Testament by another figure of speech. Listen to me carefully. And when when old covenant believers like Peter would hear this, they'd say, oh, this is deep. The figure of the cornerstone is built on the imagery of God being our rock. Think of all the times that this is stated. In 1 Samuel 2, for example, Samuel writes, There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He says it in 2 Samuel 22, The Lord is my rock, the God of my strength in whom I'll trust. The psalmist writes in Psalm 31, Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me and so when God comes in the flesh the second person of the Trinity the Lord Jesus Christ it's no stretch to understand this sequence Jesus is the cornerstone because he's our rock that's why we delight to sing hymns like rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee but what I want to do this morning is I want to make Jesus glorious in your eyes. I want you to take this imagery and you're thinking, Carl, I'm really not much of an engineering type. I'm kind of more of a a literary type. What I want you to see is why this is such a glorious picture and how it's applied to Christ. I want you to get the idea that this figure of speech is not dull and unimpressive. I want to give you several reasons why Jesus as our cornerstone is glorious. First of all, Jesus is glorious because he's a living stone. Look at verse 5. We are told that we then are being as living stones, or verse 4, coming to him as a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He is not an inanimate block of marble, but a a living, breathing person upon whom the whole entire church is built. He's glorious because he's a living stone. And what Peter is saying is, you have this amazing transition. You have the Old Testament temple, which are blocks of stone. Yeah, they may have been adorned with, with gold and precious stones. But what makes Jesus so glorious is instead of being a block of concrete, he's a person he's a living stone the second reason why he's glorious as our cornerstone he's glorious because he can never be destroyed several years ago 22 years ago exactly the whole world watched in horror on september 11 2001 when you saw this building these two buildings that were thought to be impregnable weighing billions of tons and they came down in just a minute Well, Jesus is glorious because he, as our cornerstone, can never be destroyed. A day is coming when the Pentagon and the Taj Mahal will be crushed and burned up and disappear. They'll all be dissolved. Not this cornerstone. He's glorious because he's durable. He can never be destroyed. Another reason why he's glorious is he's glorious as the cornerstone because of his immensity. I don't know if you've ever looked at a big cornerstone for a big building. Sometimes they're like almost half as big as this room but that's nothing compared to our cornerstone listen to what Isaiah writes of our cornerstone in Isaiah 40 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand who has measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure Who has weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? And what Isaiah is trying to get you to think thereof is of the immensity of God, even God, the second person, the son. Jesus is glorious because he receives no strength or support from all the other stones. In in ancient construction, the cornerstone received protection from that which is built upon it. But Jesus receives nothing from the church that's built on top of him. What can weak saints do to strengthen him? Another reason why Jesus is glorious is because, and I want you to look at the phrasing in verse four of our text. Jesus is glorious because he is a precious stone. It's the Greek word intimon, which is translated in your translation as precious. And it means highly valued. We use the term precious metals like gold. Now, in southern parlance, uh, this is why I want to correct this, in southern parlance, precious just means cute, as in, well, isn't she just precious? But how do we know that Jesus is precious, that he's valuable? Well, the Father said from heaven at Christ's anointing in Matthew 3, this is my beloved precious son in whom I'm well pleased. He is so precious that the Father will only accept those who come through him. He is so precious that the design of God in the gospel is to put all honor upon Christ. He commands all men to honor the Son as they honor the Father. He's precious in the esteem of all the angels. Think of how they honored him at his birth as legions of them line up in the sky to sing to him these words, glory to God in the highest. He is precious forever to all the saints. We are told in Revelation chapter 5 that our song will be one of proclaiming how precious and valuable he is. As we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And he's especially precious in all his offices. He is precious or valuable as our prophet. His words are the words of eternal life. He alone can tell us how to be reconciled to an offended and holy God. As our prophet, he gives us hope by his promises and his invitations to the weary and heavy laden and brokenhearted. He's precious as our priest. He's valuable because he has made complete atonement for sin by his sacrifice on the cross, and he still makes intercession for us. His sacrifice satisfied the demands of the justice of God. And any of you that have ever felt the pangs of a guilty conscience and then obtained relief from Jesus through the forgiveness of those sins can attest to the preciousness of his priestly work. He's precious because he's our king, because he gives perfectly wise laws to rule his people. He's precious because he exercises his kingly power in our hearts. He subdues the rebellious and writes his laws upon our heart. Now at this point you're thinking, Okay, Carl, at this point, everyone would be lining up to have such a cornerstone. The whole world would be. Because you have him, you have him prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Covenant temple as the cornerstone. And, and I see why he's so precious. He's the stone that joins these two walls together. He's the stone that, that the church is built upon. I get it. You'd think everyone would line up and say, that's the cornerstone I need and you'd be wrong because look at verse 8. Peter, after having declared what Jesus is to believers, now tells us what Jesus is to unbelievers. Look at verse 8. Peter gives us a chilling litany of all those who want nothing to do with Jesus. We are told in verse 4 and then again in verse 7, That Jesus, as the cornerstone, is rejected both by men and by the builders. And that he is, look at verse 8, that he is offensive. Now, let me point out why many people stumble over our Jesus, over the cornerstone. Because you're thinking, Carl, he's precious to me. My entire life is built upon him. The life of this congregation is built upon him. How could anybody stumble over Jesus let me give you seven reasons why. And I want you to think very carefully about these. One of these explains why your coworker is stumbling over Christ. One of these explains why your family member that you'll have lunch with today is stumbling over Jesus. Seven reasons why. Some stumble out of blindness, first of all. They simply don't know nor have they heard of Jesus the cornerstone. This Wednesday, we'll have the great delight to hear from one of our missionaries, Jay Brantley, who is in northern Kenya on the Sudanese border. He's ministering to the Samburu people. His wife Sumter will be speaking the next day at a women's brunch. You want to hear them, but they are taking the gospel to a place where it's never been heard before. And there, people are stumbling because they simply don't know, nor have they ever heard of Jesus the cornerstone. The second reason why many stumble, some men stumble out of pure unbelief. They refuse to believe the gospel. They've heard it. They refuse to believe the gospel, not because they need more evidence, but because they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness that they've already heard. A third reason why many stumble over Christ, the cornerstone. Some stumble. In fact, many do This may be the chief aspect of stumbling in our culture in America in 2023. Some stumble over Jesus because they hate him. In John 15, Jesus tells us that the world hated him without a cause. They hated him because he was pure and they were impure. Because he was the truth and they loved lies. Many stumble over Jesus because they despise his name. The fourth reason why many stumble over Christ. It's spoken of here in verse 8. Some stumble over the, the scandalous nature of our Lord's death. This was the key reason, the key stumbling block to the Jews, Paul says in First Corinthians 1. Because they viewed anyone as a who died on a cross. And so they said, we can't get over this issue that Jesus was a criminal hung on a cross. Therefore, we will stumble over him. A fifth reason why many stumble, and maybe I'm speaking to some of you today. Some stumble over Jesus because of pride. They don't like the idea of their works and their righteousness not being acceptable to a holy God. They're unwilling to confess their sinfulness and their need for a substitute. I cannot tell you now well over 40 years into my Christian life and talking to hundreds of people who will argue with me and say, my righteousness is too good enough. I have been a good person. Are you telling me that your gospel is that I'm a sinner desperately in need of a Savior? I stumble over that, Carl. I've paid my taxes every year. I keep my grass cut. I help little ladies across the street. I've never stolen anything from anyone. And they stumble because of sheer pride. A sixth reason why many stumble over Jesus. Some stumble over Jesus because of his lowliness. We're told in Isaiah 53, by the way, of course we reject all images and pictures of Jesus. But I'm always astounded by when men try to paint Jesus. 99% of the time they paint him as is attractive kind of a california surfer dude and with almost blondish hair i'm thinking you do know that jesus was a jew right he wouldn't have had blonde hair he was swarthy he would have had dark curly hair but it's interesting how how people whenever they try to represent jesus falsely and they always do a poor job of it but they never capture his lowliness and his unattractiveness Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53? He has no form or comeliness or beauty that we should desire him. Many in Jesus' day stumbled over him. Remember what the critique was of Jesus? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Oh, he's so low class. He's so unattractive. Many stumbled over his lowliness and unattractiveness. A seventh reason why many stumble over Jesus. Many stumble over Jesus because of a particular doctrine of his. I think of the, per- the people who said to me, I can't believe that Jesus, uh, I know it's claimed for him in John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, I can't believe that this man was the creator of all things, that he spoke in solar systems and galaxies came into existence. I don't like the doctrine of creation. Others stumble because I can't believe in a person who's God and fully God and fully man. I can't even understand that. Others say, I can't believe in and follow a Savior that condemns my lifestyle. Carl, I have particular practices that he is condemned and so I'm not going to follow over him. I stumble over that. Others say, I can't believe in a Savior. I stumble over this, over a Savior who tells me to deny myself. Those are seven reasons why men stumble, as it's spoken of here in verse 8. Does all of this stumbling over Jesus defeat God's purpose? No. Human unbelief never thwarts or frustrates the plan of God. And I want you to see something profound in verse 8 of our text. None of this surprises God, because we're told in 1 Peter 2, verse 8, that these stumblers were appointed to this stumbling. Peter here is teaching us the doctrine of reprobation. Their stumbling was not accidental, as humans often trip unintentionally while walking. This stumbling, like everything else, was ordained and decreed by a sovereign God. And remember, we believe in the sovereignty of God over all things. From the decisions of kings, we're told that the king's heart is in the Lord's hand, he turns it whichever way he wishes. To the throwing of a dice, we're told in Proverbs 16. The point is that human unbelief cannot defeat the purposes of God. If God plans for Jesus to be the cornerstone, men can desert him, deny him, mock him, spit on him, crown him with thorns, crucify him, kill him, bury him. But they cannot stop him from being what God ordained him to be, the living cornerstone of a great and glorious people. And if a proud unbeliever should say, I've chosen my own destiny, My own disobedience and my own stumbling to show God that I have the ultimate and final say. I have the ultimate power of self-determination and I will thwart the purposes of God with my own will. Look at the end of verse 8. Peter says, no you can't. You will discover sooner or later whatever you choose and your choices are crucial and real. Even these choices were decreed. Didn't Simeon, the old man in the temple when Jesus was an infant, in arms when he was carried in in his mother's arms to the temple, didn't Simeon prophesy then that Jesus was destined for the falling, the stumbling, and rising of many? How do we apply this word? Let me make eight or so applications to you. The first is, The kingdom of God is built upon that which men reject and find worthless. Never be surprised when men find Jesus and his gospel pointless. Now again, you need to recognize whenever you speak of Jesus and his glory and his attractiveness to men, that there's going to be a certain number who will reject and find worthless. They'll stumble over him. That's the way it's always been. Never be surprised at that. A second thing you should know. So authoritative is Jesus. He is the judgment stone for every person, culture, and nation in all of history. If you or anyone else builds on any other foundation, we are told repeatedly in the Old Testament, and New, you'll be crushed by him. That is why we preach Christ alone. He is alone the right foundation to build upon for eternity. No other foundation can suffice. A third application let me urge you stand on this foundation can you find a more solid foundation on which to build your life in eternity you're thinking well i'm planning on building my life on the foundation of my own righteousness my friends that's a dung heap well carl i'm planning on building my life on the foundation of my own wisdom you're a greater fool than we thought The only foundation you may stand on and not be crushed is the foundation of Jesus, his person and his work. A fourth application. This morning, if you're in Christ, you should praise God for his mercy. That by his calling of you, his drawing of you, his regenerating of you, Jesus is not a stumbling block to you. That neither his person, his work, his miracles, his doctrine, his people or his scriptures are an offense to you but my friend don't have a short memory there was a time when you stumbled over all those things and so your gratitude should be great today for the mercy of god that he took you from stumbling over jesus to the place where you gladly stand on the rock who is christ a fifth application and I want to speak about this very carefully our our culture has become a very a very uh, difficult culture in which to even have a, a conversation especially about the Lord Jesus Christ and so I want to encourage you that you labor in all your dealings with others that the cause of their stumbling when you speak is not you and your weird political and economic and sociocultural ideas or just your obnoxious personality But the only thing that you give men to stumble over is Christ. Make sure they're not stumbling over your opinions or your practices, but only Christ, the cornerstone. May it be true in our conversations with others that they say, I don't like that guy's Jesus. His Jesus is so offensive to me. His Jesus is a stumbling block. He's a nice guy. He's not a knucklehead. He doesn't steal my parking spot at work. He cuts that strip of grass between our yards because he's such a nice guy. But I hate his Jesus. Our task is to not give offense in all these other matters, to to purely shine the spotlight on Jesus, that he would be the only thing that we would speak of that gives offense. A sixth application. I would ask you today, Peter uses this language in verse 7 of preciousness. Is Christ precious to you? Jesus told the parable of a man who discovered a treasure in a field and sold all that he had to buy that field. Is that how you view Jesus? Is everything else rubbish, refuse, and dung to you? If Christ is precious to you, you will be frequently seeking his company in private prayer. If Christ is precious to you, you will love his people above all others. If Christ is precious to you, you will love his day and his word. The seventh application When Peter and the Old Testament prophets speak of a cornerstone, they're talking about something that lasts, something sturdy. I want you to notice the clear and repeated testimony of the New Testament is. Only the church is founded on the cornerstone. Only the church. No other institution. Nations rise and fall. Ours is rapidly falling. But Jesus made no promises about the perpetuity or the stability of a nation like ours. But there's only one institution that is built on the rock, the church. She will prevail. Oh, her center of gravity, it's already moved. It's moved from the Middle East in the first 500 years of of the new covenant to Europe to the next 1,000 years and to the new world for the last 500 years. The epicenter of the church is rapidly moving away from our nation. And it's moving to Africa Asia and South America that's fine the church will prevail the gates of hell will not prevail against her why because she is built on the rock don't stand on well Carl I'll take my stand on this nation I'll take my stand on this economic theory my friend only the church is built on the cornerstone an eighth application Since Jesus is the cornerstone, all who are built on him should be stable. There's nothing more troubling than a believer who's unstable, who falls apart at the slightest gust of wind. That's unseemly, my friends, because we have a rock for a foundation. This is why repeatedly the New Testament writers tell us things like that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Be steadfast, and unmovable. Why can Paul make this this imperative? Because you're standing on the rock. Flightiness, instability, faddishness don't fit with the people who are standing on the rock. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for setting our feet on the rock who is Christ. We pray that you would keep us from stumbling over him. And we pray corporately that Jesus would be the cornerstone, oh may it ever be so, of Woodruff Presbyterian Church. That we would never grow weary or bored of standing on Christ.